Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 7. The Great Divorce, Chapter 5. The Episcopal Ghost. Friends, welcome to the Pints with Jack weekly podcast, where David and I have the distinct privilege of enjoying a drink together, unpacking the writings of C.S. Lewis, and discovering the truth and beauty of Christianity with you all. We're currently in Season 2, in unlocking the treasures hidden within our favorite C.S. Lewis work, The Great Divorce. My name is Matt, and I am joined by my friend David, who understands better than most that inquiry is made for truth. And I can say, he's helped me to come closer to truth myself. Glad to hear it. I am so excited about today's chapter. There's just like so many things to discuss. This is probably my favorite part of The Great Divorce. So you're actually going to have to keep me in check. Otherwise, this episode is going to get really long. David, in my experience of being your friend, not many people can keep you in check. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is true. (laughs) You're a very independent, I mean that in a compliment, you're a very independent, strong-willed human being. And I don't know if I really want to have that fight. Well, at least try a little. But (laughs) we actually had some positive feedback on Twitter, particularly following our last episode where we increase the length a little bit. So for the time being, expect episodes to be between 30 and 40 minutes, but they won't go beyond that. But we now do have a little bit more room to speak. Which you're not going to complain about. I mean, I do enjoy talking. You do indeed. (laughs) But we we will try to, we will promise the listeners that here that we will try to make sure it's not just rambling. Dave and I will keep it very tight. Yes. There seems to be a trend in a lot of podcasts I like recently. They're just going way longer, episodes, an hour, hour and a half. And I always feel like, ugh, they could could trim this down. Yes. And you do a very good job. David does a lot of our editing. He does a great job trimming it down. Well, let's get on. The quote of the week is something that's said by the Bright Spirit in this chapter. And he says to the Episcopal Ghost, Our opinions were not honestly come by. We simply found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and plunged into it because it seemed modern and successful. We were playing with loaded dice. Was it last week or two weeks ago when I told you I would have chosen a different one? Yours would have been second. Mm -hmm. I would have chosen this one. (laughs) I approve. Glad to hear it. Well, you're still on Exodus 90, so I'm the only one that's drinking. So today's episode is sponsored by my boss, Jesus. He gave me a bottle of Buchanan's Deluxe. Are you having a La Croix? I am. I'm having a lemon one. But before you sip it, have you ever had this? Is this your first time having this uh, scotch? It's not my very first time. I did try it when I first got it, but it's been a while. Well, cheers. Cheers. Mm, It's very nice. One of my friends said that this is, I think he said this is one of the most popular whiskeys in Colombia. Interesting. So this past week, you were interviewed on Forte Catholic. And what was that like? Oh, yeah, it was really cool. I had a 20-minute chat with Taylor Schroll and Father Anthony Skirapa, and we spoke a little bit about why my website is called Restless Pilgrim, and also why everyone should read C.S. Lewis. Did you talk about the podcast at all? Of course. Okay, just making sure. (laughs) Do some shameless plugs. Absolutely. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Speaking of interviews, uh, we've had some great feedback from the interview with Paddy Callahan concerning her book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. And this past week, I interviewed Joseph Pierce, where we talked about the relationship between C.S. Lewis and Catholicism. And I'm really hoping whether you're Protestant or Catholic, you'll find that discussion really interesting. Yeah, I want to listen to this before you release it. <laughs> I want to hear this, so I don't really want to wait for the few weeks before this is released. 
Okay. Okay. Well, check the Google Drive because it'll probably be up there earlier. <laughs> Good. But it'll probably be released in a, a few more weeks. Fantastic. Well, update on my side. This past, we didn't record this past weekend because I was on my third spiritual retreat. And it's the one that goes for two years. And so I go to Chicago every quarter. And I wanted to share just maybe a minute or two because every time I've been going, it's been beautiful. And it's very interdenominational. There's a lot of different faiths there. In fact, I think I'm probably the only one representing the Catholic faith. But I've been blown away with how similar it is to what we're talking about with C.S. Lewis. So ultimately, this, this retreat is about spiritual leadership and this idea that if you want to be a truly effective leader in life, you have to die to your false self and find your true self. And that false self is that part that we put on, that ego of us that tries to win praises and love from the world. Well, this retreat was on the intimacy of prayer and the intimacy of asking God and the intimacy of spending time with him. And they talked about, for example, she called it fixed hour prayer, but referring to like the liturgy of the hours, talked about praying with icons. I was amazed, first of all, being a Catholic person. I'm like, wow, this all sounds like my tradition, (laughs) but it was so beautiful. Ultimately, all this is for is creating space for theosis to happen. And, and they discuss that. They call, she calls it spiritual transformation. It's that new man, that, that, that restoration, that renewal happening within us that, that turns us into sons of God in a lowercase g sense. And so it was a beautiful retreat. The reason I wanted to share this is I was talking to my Exodus 90 group this past Wednesday. And to me, this language has become very normal. They were blown away. They never thought of this false self, true self, this theosis. And, and I know we've been talking about this somewhat on this podcast, but maybe a listener hears this and thinks, oh, I never thought of the spiritual journey that way. Sounds to me like your Exodus 90 group need to listen to our podcast more. You know what? None of them knew I was doing this with you. And so I actually, I talked about this and now they all have, we got a few subscribers after that uh, call on Wednesday. Test them. Make sure they're listening. I will. Uh, Actually, on the subject of theosis, I'm going to be in Dodge City the first weekend in March, and I'm going to be speaking at a conference there. And one of my talks is, what's the point of Christianity? Oh, that would be great. Hopefully you record it. I will. All right, good. Okay, so it's your turn to do the 150-word summary of the chapter. Oh, I love it. Cue the beautiful music in the background. (laughs) Jack encounters one of the bright spirits, talking to the Episcopal ghost. The ghost laughs that his friend, while on earth, believed in a literal heaven and hell. Dick responds by asking the ghost where he thinks he's been. Dick explains that he was sent to hell for apostasy. The ghost objects that they were his honest opinions. But Len explains that the opinions were not honestly come by. Dick invites him to repent and believe but the ghost protests that he already believes. He wants some assurances concerning life in heaven, but Dick refuses to give them. The ghost speaks for some time about how he finds something stifling about the idea of finality in ready-made truth. He then suddenly remembers that he can't go to heaven as he's scheduled to present a paper at the Greytown's Theological Society and leaves to return to the bus. The chapter begins with a strange incident with some lions. Lewis says that two velvet-footed lions came bounding into the open space, their eyes fixed upon each other, and started playing some solemn romp. Not greatly liking my company, I moved away to find the river. 
Why do you think Lewis includes this incident? Almost in all of these chapters, he continues when he describes the environment, when he describes this beginning of heaven in a very tangible, substantial, intentional, beautiful way. But he just keeps creating this picture of an incredibly beautiful place. And so I don't know if that's his why, but that's what I'm getting from it. Mm. I mean, we spoke in the other episode about Aslan references, that this isn't a tame land. Mm. Uh, But the phrase, a solemn romp, is almost a contradiction in terms. A romp is roughhousing. And I'm not really sure what a solemn version of that would look like. Yeah, I don't know either. I think he's trying to communicate a sense of majesty, joy, and danger. So they're lions, but they're velvet-footed. I think it's a rather confusing cocktail of impressions, but I, I think that's what he's trying to communicate about heaven, that it's so much greater than our normal categories. And you could almost imagine it's these two lions, but couldn't you imagine some lesser creature that a lion could crush joining them and not even thinking about the dichotomy between this lion could kill me right now? Hmm. That's a good point. It could be like in scripture when it talks about the lion and the lamb laying down together. Hmm. Yeah. One listener, Paddy, texted me suggesting that this was perhaps a C.S. Lewis crossover, that the land that they're now currently in is the land visited by Jill in the silver chair. Those of you who have read Narnia, let me know what you think about that theory. I rather like it. Yeah, I don't know what Jill in the silver chair is referring to. It's one of the Chronicles of Narnia. Don't worry, I'll make you read it eventually. <laughs> anyway, Lewis says that he sees the fat ghost with the cultured voice with whom he had spoken on the bus. And listeners will remember that this is the man who declared that in the grey town, it would never become night. He was also the chap who seems to decry anything physical as materialism. This ghost, he meets a bright spirit, someone whom he knew on earth called Dick. We don't ever find out the ghost's name, but Lewis just calls him the Episcopal Ghost. We're going to find out later that this ghost was a bishop. That's what Episcopal means. It's not talking about a Christian denomination. And Lewis actually hints at the ghost's profession early on with his comment that the ghost seemed to be wearing gaiters. I had to look this up, uh, but apparently gaiters formed an everyday part of clerical clothing in the Church of England, at least up until the middle part of the 20th century. They were black material that was buttoned up the sides of the calf until just below the knee. And their purpose was practical, since bishops would have to ride horses to the various parts of the diocese. I skipped right over it. It, it always bothered me. I was never quite sure what Lewis was getting at. So I spent a bit of time working out their significance. And we should let the listeners know that they were friends on Earth. Mm -hmm. We'll learn this as it unpacks here, but their friendship was very much surrounded by this this thirst for inquiry. They used to love questioning and wrestling with theology. And so I was thinking of Lewis's four loves, the the wait, you two? Like that that's what brought these two together. Mm -hmm. And so now they're being reunited. Yeah. And it actually turns out that the bright spirit's father is still in the gray town. And he asks the ghost why he didn't bring him. The ghost says, to be quite frank, he's beginning a little eccentric lately, a little difficult, losing his grip. And as I was preparing this episode, I realized that we never hear any of the residents of hell say anything nice about the others. Yeah, there was an arrogance when I read that to this guy. (laughs) You're also talking about somebody's father. You maybe want to choose your words a little bit more carefully. Uh Uh-huh. Now, the issue over loved ones being in hell is going to be addressed 
in a later chapter. So I think we should just skip over that for the time being until we have George MacDonald as our guide. <laughs> He's a better guy than you and I. Yeah, yeah. The Episcopal ghost begins to fondly reminisce about those in-depth discussions that you mentioned, the ones that they used to have on Earth. And he says, I expect you've changed your views a bit since then. You became rather narrow-minded towards the end of your life, but no doubt you've broadened out again. Oh, that bugged me. And it's with great amusement that he <laughs> says, get this, <laughs> Dick was coming to believe in a literal heaven and hell. <laughs> in the bright spirit at this point, brilliantly responds, excuse me, where do you imagine you've been? <laughs> I just picture him stunned, thinking, seriously, dude? You're standing in heaven and still doubting its existence. You've been in hell and still doubting its existence. Oh, that was priceless to me. And so, yes, exactly as you said, he then goes on to point out the gray town is hell, uh, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and it might seem shocking that Lewis would put a bishop in hell. But as I mentioned before in the Inferno, Dante puts many clergymen in hell, including bishops and popes. I do think there's an important reminder for us here that those under whose authority we've been placed are indeed due our respect and obedience. But it's worth remembering that they're still human and therefore inclined to sin. Even those of us who are Catholic, who claim that the Pope is infallible, that in specific circumstances he can speak without error on matters of faith and morals, that's no guarantee of impeccability. We're not saying that he's sinless. In just to clarify, it very specific. In, very specific in, circumstances. Yes. <laughs> you did say specific, but something I've learned that a lot of people misunderstand that teaching. Mm -hmm. But even with that great charism, that great gift, that promise of Christ, it still doesn't mean that popes are necessarily going to be wise or even good people. If you want to read about some of the horrendous history of the Catholic Church, read the book Bad Shepherds. It chronicles it quite excruciatingly. Huh, I'll have to check that book out. Well, what's good about that book is it shows how the laity responded during those times, during the times of bad shepherds, when the laity basically stood up and sought lives of holiness and thereby transformed the church. Well, that's inspiring. So the ghost has been in hell, but the spirit says something very interesting. He says, you have been in hell, though if you don't go back, you may call it purgatory. And I'm sure that that line is going to shock a lot of people, Catholic and Protestant alike. The idea that hell could be, in fact, purgatory if you choose to leave it. How do you react to that? Full endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's worth emphasizing, again, what Lewis said at the beginning, that this is a work of fiction and it's an imaginative supposal. Yeah, to give you a more honest answer, you caught me off guard by that question, but when I did read it, I thought to myself, I somewhat think of that as a third distinct place. I don't think of it as hell and then retrospectively hell becomes purgatory i've and I, i've done no research on this so listeners don't assume i'm speaking to what the true teaching is i just have always assumed that it's a third place i think lewis's understanding of purgatory is rooted in his understanding of theosis his heavenly and hellish creatures and the simple logic that firstly as the book of revelation says nothing unclean can enter heaven and secondly that our sanctification our growing in holiness is rarely completed before the end of our life that the implication is that the process of sanctification has to be completed after death before stepping into heaven's throne room. And we spoke about this in episode 39 of season one, if you want to listen to some more about that. Let me ask you this. 
So nothing that's unclean can enter into heaven. But what if someone were to push back at you and say, well, does it have to be through purgatory or can't God just kind of snap his fingers and you're clean? I would just say that if you believe in that, you believe in purgatory. You just believe in an instant purgatory. But even the question of instant is problematic because you're now in eternity. So what does time even mean? That's a good way of looking at it. What do you think Lewis's point was in equating hell and purgatory? If I'm being honest, I don't have a good answer. What do you think? I think it relates to Lewis's understanding of suffering and sanctification. In Letters to Malcolm, he speaks about purgatory. He says this, My favorite image of this matter comes from the dentist's chair. I hope that when the tooth of life is drawn and I am coming round, a voice will say, rinse your mouth out with this. This will be purgatory. The rinsing may take longer than I can now imagine. The taste may be more fiery and astringent than my present sensibility could endure, but it will not be disgusting and unhallowed. There's suffering in hell and purgatory, but the suffering in hell is punitive. It's relating to punishment. Whereas in purgatory, it's purgative. It's cleansing. I mean, the classic text for Catholics when they speak about purgatory in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 3, where St. Paul talks about the day of judgment testing each man's work by fire. He says, if the work which any man has built on the foundation of Christ survives, he will receive a reward. However, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so with that in mind, I think in Lewis's story, in the great town, the inhabitants suffer the consequences of their sins and have the capacity to wallow in them. The difference is that those who, as we would say in Catholicism, died in friendship with God, they still have the capacity to let go of their sin and choose to get on the bus and go to heaven. However, it appears that one of the functions of the Grey Town is to help people realize their bad choices and to nurture within them a desire to leave. And just to steal some of the imagery from that Corinthians passage, imagine you're holding a an arm full of hay and straw in your hands. And imagine that it's set on fire, as St. Paul describes. Those in hell hold on tightly to their works, and they're therefore unable to let go, or unwilling. But those who will be in purgatory, they can let go of these mistakes. And when they do, they're free. We can assume that this is, this is also meant to be our own journey here on Earth. Mm-hmm. And how often we're on Earth... Seeing the way the world's living and seeing some of these other values that are quite counter to Christianity, and a lot of times the despair and loneliness that comes with them, that pushes me towards Christianity. That pushes me to desire it more because it just seems so beautiful in contrast. As well as living with the consequences of your sin. Yeah. Because very often that's one of the natural means by which we turn back to God when we see what sin brings about. Yeah. Well said. The Episcopal Ghost asks why, in Dick's opinion, he was sent to hell. Dick rather bluntly tells him that he was an apostate, and needless to say, the ghost doesn't respond well to this, and he asks, do you really think that people are penalised for their honest opinions? Even assuming, for sake of argument, that those opinions were mistaken. I love the fact, despite having lived in hell for some time, and the fact that he's now conversing with a glorified saint, he is still resistant to the idea of even conceding that he was perhaps mistaken. <laughs> which, which begs the question, first of all, were these really honest opinions? Mm-hmm. 
we're going to notice this theme through many chapters. And it's just something we need to pay attention to our own life. How well we can rationalize stuff. Mm -hmm. Like he created a scenario there where my honest opinions are sending me to hell. That's not actually the circumstance. The the true question is, were they actually honest opinions? I don't I don't personally believe God would necessarily send you to hell just for honest opinions, genuine honest opinions that you're wrestling with. Well, that's what Dick says. He says it all turns on exactly what qualifies as honest opinions. Mm-hmm. And the ghost says that his weren't only honest, but they were heroic. And he said that he asserted <laughs> them fearlessly. That, oh my goodness, this bit. He said, when the doctrine of the resurrection ceased to commend itself to the critical faculties which God had given me, I openly rejected it. I preached my famous sermon. I defied the whole chapter. I took every risk. Unreal. This is a Christian clergyman who preached that the resurrection never actually happened. <laughs> I find it hard to believe that St. Paul would have approved. In 1 Corinthians 15, he said that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's incredible. So then you have to beg the question of why was he doing it? Well, <laughs> the bright spirit, he doesn't think that what he did was heroic. And he said, what was the risk? <laughs> what was likely to come except from what actually did come? Popularity, sales for your books, invitations, and eventually a bishopric. Just goes to show that just because you're cynical doesn't mean that you're also not right. <laughs> and we have to point out here that it is okay to wrestle with doctrine. Sure. I know in my journey, you know, in your journey, probably that there are teachings or things you've struggled with. That's mm. not the issue here. We're trying to stress that. It's not that he genuinely wrestled and had honest opinions that were contrary to what we're supposed to believe in the Christian teaching. It was exactly what you just said. He's doing this out of like a self popularity, promotion, books, heroicism. I mean, that, that's the issue. It's not the wrestling. And as a result of this, he got a bishopric. That's, he became a bishop. That's why he's called the Episcopal Ghost. And we might be tempted to think that Lewis is describing something rather farcical here. I mean, the idea that an out-and-out -out heretic would become a celebrity and even promoted for denying one of the central tenets of the Christian faith. But the sad truth, this is not exactly unusual in Christian history. Even back in 1969 when Lewis wrote Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism, he said, Once, the layman was anxious to hide the fact that he believed so much less than the vicar. Now, he tends to hide the fact that he believes so much more. <laughs> That's brilliant. He created the character of the Episcopal Ghost, no doubt with the Church of England in mind, since that was the church that Lewis belonged to, but this sort of thing can be found throughout denominations. Having said that... <laughs> I recently came across the statistic that back in August of 2002, there was a survey of 2,000 Anglican clergymen, and it was found that a third of them didn't believe in the resurrection, and over half didn't believe in the virgin birth. Wow. That's pretty damning, <laughs> literally. I never knew that. And like I said, this, I don't want to pick on the Church of England, because like I say, this happens throughout different denominations. There are some common tells. When clergy and theologians deny fundamental concepts in Christianity, they're described as fresh or imaginative or up-to-date or modern. And almost inevitably, they'll deny the tougher doctrines and lower the moral standards of Christianity. All those things that make us feel uncomfortable or demand more of us, they'll dismiss them. 
which has the double effect of one, watering down Christianity, but two, contributing to their own popularity. Because pastor so-and-so, theologian such-and-such, now tells me that the moral discipline I've had to have in this area, I don't have to have it anymore. I don't know how much G.K. Chesterton you've read, but this makes me think of him in his description of the Catholic Church, which is a church he was a part of, where for him, at his time, a very big criticism of the Catholic Church, it's very slow moving. Mm-hmm. It's like this ship, this massive ship that's slow to steer and can't keep up with, keep up with modern times. And we hear that today more than ever. But he argued that's exactly what makes it so, what, what he loves about it, what makes it so powerful. Most people sway with these currents back and forth of the popularity of the times, where he would rather be a part of the church that changes the times towards truth. Mm-hmm. It's not changed by the times. And so then over the course of this chapter, Dick begins to address the Episcopal Ghost's central assertion that his opinions were honest. And this is really the central rebuttal in this chapter. So I'm going to read quite a bit here. He says, Let us be frank. Our opinions were not honestly come by. We simply found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and plunged into it because it seemed modern and successful, saying the kinds of things that one applauds. When in our whole lives did we honestly face in solitude the one question on which all turned? Whether, after all, the supernatural might not in fact occur? When did we put up a moment's real resistance to the loss of our faith? You know that you and I were playing with loaded dice. Having allowed ourselves to drift, unresisting, unpraying, accepting every half-conscious solicitation from our desires, we reached a point where we no longer believed the faith. That's the apostasy. And this is where we start seeing the turning point. So he just described what went wrong. What was wrong with them? They, they, they weren't honestly resisting the current. They were just plunging themselves into the modern, the popular, or the trends. What the Spirit points out next is, this is okay, but we need to repent and believe. It's going back to what Lewis spoke about in the preface. It's how we fix an arithmetic problem. It's how we fix getting lost. We go back to where we made the mistake and fix it there. And this is where the Episcopal ghost responds as he's hearing all of this. That's great. This is your opinion. But in the meantime, in the spirit quickly responds, wait, wait, there is no meantime. Mm-hmm. All that is over. We are not playing now. Yeah, the ghost tries to, he, he says what he's saying is extremely interesting and a point of view. He's not concerning himself with whether it's true or false. It's just interesting. The bright spirit says, one wrench and the tooth will be out. You can begin as if nothing ever went wrong. White as snow. I loved that white as snow. And another dentist reference. We really should have started to counter when we began this podcast of the number of times Lewis talks about dentists and teeth. (laughs) This is like, I shouldn't be saying this. Hopefully we don't have young listeners, but this is like when they create a drinking game for like the Super Bowl (laughs) or the Grammys or the Oscars. A drinking game for reading C.S. Lewis. Take a shot for every time he references a dentist. (laughs) I think I might have to actually make that game a reality. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But the Spirit says to the ghost, you have seen hell, you are now in sight of heaven, will you even now repent and believe? But the ghost says that he already believes, and he doesn't think he's got anything to repent of. This is where grace is so profound. The, The Spirit seeing this says, all right, you know what, you don't need to accept all of this yet, but can you at least believe in me? 
Can you believe that I was your friend on earth? We approached, we thought so similarly, and now look at what I've come to. Believe that maybe I have some credibility. Essentially, take my hand and let's just get to the next step. Yeah. To start this journey. He doesn't have to accept this all at once. We in this journey don't have to accept all this at once. Maybe I say, I'm on this journey, I go, you know what? I'm not sure I believe everything, but David is a really intelligent person and he's 15 years ahead of me or 10 years ahead of me on this journey. I trust that he's seen some things that I haven't yet. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. And travel with me for a while. And travel with you for a while. And let's just see where this goes. But the ghost wants assurances about heaven (laughs) and the spirit refuses to give him any. (laughs) He says that there'll be no sphere of usefulness. You are not needed there at all. No scope for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry. For I will bring you to a land not of questions, but of answers, and you will see the face of God. And here is the condition. Every chapter, there's a condition a person can't accept. We're, we're now seeing the condition for the Episcopal ghost. He can't accept a place that doesn't have an atmosphere of inquiry. He doesn't like this idea that there's a place with absolute truth or answers. Yeah, he says, for me, there's no such thing as a final answer. Oh, that was unreal. (laughs) He says, to travel hopefully is better than to arrive. And the ghost points out that that's got to be nonsense, because if you knew you were never going to arrive, how could you possibly travel hopefully? (laughs) That was brilliant to me. And the ghost uses a lot of language like finality and stagnation, and he dislikes ready-made truth. And so the spirit, he says, once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for... There was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you had found them. Become that child again, even now. Thirst was made for water. Inquiry was made for truth, he says. But the ghost does that really annoying thing that Christians do. He cherry picks a Bible verse to back up his case. He quotes 1 Corinthians 13 and saying that when I became a man, I put away childish things. The ghost actually says a stinging line. He says, what you now call the free play of inquiry has neither more nor less to do with the ends for which intelligence was given you than masturbation has to do with marriage. Yeah, unpack that a little bit. I reread that like three or four times. Well, he's accusing him of intellectual masturbation, which is an essentially fruitless pursuit. The sex organs were made for an end, coming together with somebody of the opposite sex and producing children. And so what he's done is he's intellectually perverted what his intelligence was meant for. Rather than using his intelligence to seek out truth, the end for which intelligence was made, he uses it just as a plaything to amuse himself. I read that like three or four times. I'm like, I don't know if I could explain this. I'm not actually entirely sure what he's saying. And so if you're trying to find an example of if you're on the fence of whether Christianity is true or not, just give it the benefit of the doubt because David believes it. (laughs) And he has an accent. And glasses. Yeah, all three come together. That seems proof enough to me. So, the spirit has asked the ghost whether he believes in him. That didn't work. So he now asks him whether or not he even believes in God. And the ghost dodges the question, asking what the word existence even means. This is when it took to a whole level of ridiculousness. So annoying. (laughs) Yes, And then in a last-ditch attempt, he asks the ghost if he even desires happiness. Why do you think he then goes there? 
if you're living through truth, you would expect truth to bring some sort of happiness. Chesterton talks about truth, in his opinion, is the one key that can open the door to joy. And so whatever key fits and opens the door to happiness, to him, is a sign of truth. If you don't even desire happiness, there's no ground for me to be able to even relate to you or to have this conversation. I think it's probably just the most base motivation you could have for being a Christian. If you've heard that this will produce happiness, it's like, fine, it's good enough. You actually might not really care about truth, but if, if you say that if I follow this, I'll be happy, that might be enough to lead me on, at least initially, until I see that it is also true. I like that. The other thing I was thinking of is, it's almost like this is pointing out the absurdity of this guy's logic. If he can't even say, I desire happiness, because I could picture him saying, can you at least still desire happiness? Well, is happiness really that important? Or do we really need it? Saying yes would be a final answer, and he seems allergic to even that. Yes, there you go. That would be an absolute truth. I desire happiness. He just can't even say that. And then it's at this point that the Episcopal ghost realizes that he can't possibly stay in heaven. He started a theological society in hell, and he's going to be reading a paper there next Friday. Oh, he definitely can't miss that. Well, exactly. He'll be useful now. He'll be able to help people. And his paper is just classic. Using Ephesians 4 as his inspiration, his paper will be asking what the views of the mature Jesus would have been if he hadn't been killed so soon. And he says that it makes one realize what a disaster the crucifixion was. Unreal. First, though, I will say, when I read that, I was thinking, really clever. <laughs> like, <laughs> Be careful, terrible. Matt. Be careful. <laughs> terrible conclusion, but really a clever question to ask. Like, There's a wittiness to that. What if he didn't? I've never heard someone ask that. But you see all of the presuppositions that are baked into that question. Oh, yeah. And so the spirit leaves, and the ghost wanders back to the bus humming a hymn. City of God, how broad and far. Which is supremely ironic and tragic, because he's humming this tune as he's leaving the city of God. Oh, that is ironic. I actually thought the ending of this chapter was a little weird, because if I had been writing this, I would have ended it there. But there's a final paragraph where Lewis goes exploring, and he starts walking on the hard water of the river. Why do you think he has this extra paragraph? Well, first of all, it's almost as interesting as why he has the first paragraph, whatever the answer mm. is to why does he have the first paragraph of the lion? Why does he have it right at the end, like the bookend to it? The opening and the end are these nature type, the environment, the substantialness of it. So I don't actually have the answer to it, but I think it's interesting. It's related to the first one. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but part of me wondered if he's trying to give an image of the Episcopal ghost. Because Lewis is walking on the water, so he gets to avoid the difficulty of walking on the grass. So he's choosing comfort, but it doesn't work out well, because he makes very little substantial progress, because the water is running in the other direction. Maybe it's related to when in the middle of the chapter, the Spirit points out, we simply found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and plunged into it. So you have an example of the Episcopal ghost plunging into the current of ideas and constantly being swept along, flowing with them, swept along. But now you have an example of Lewis getting in. And he was swept along at first because he's still not a spirit yet. But then he gets up and he starts walking against it. Like this metaphor that he's starting to walk against the current of ideas. I like that. I think that's got some, I think that idea has got some real legs to it. 
I mean, there's, there's, there's also the biblical imagery of he's walking on water. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so rather than being an image of the Episcopal ghost, it's an image of what the Episcopal ghost should have done. And that's Cheston again. I think he says that it takes a living thing to swim upstream. Ooh. Dead things go downstream. There we go. I think we just answered it. So that was the Episcopal ghost. Honestly, this character scares me. His learning made him vain and prideful. And we saw how the intellect can be distorted and how we can slowly fade into apostasy. It's a Casting Crown song, one of my favorites. They sing, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away, when black and white are turned to gray. Thoughts invade, choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. Oh, that is beautiful. I, the thing that I took from this was, was more to do with the absolute versus a relative truth. Mm-hmm. We live in a society today where it seems to be all relativism. In the Screwtape Letters, it's in one of the early, early chapters, Screwtape says that back in the day, humans were used to changing the way they lived once they became convinced of something. I think we live in a culture today where we're unwilling to do that. Yes. We like the ideas and to talk about things, the intellectual masturbation, so to speak. But very rarely are we willing to follow through with the logic and, I don't know, make a truth baby. (laughs) (laughs) Way to continue that to its logical end. Thank you. And maybe the other lesson from this chapter is that for us laity, people who aren't clergy, that we have an important role to play in the church and that we should pray for those in authority over us. And I recently put together a graphic from one of my favorite people, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who said, who is going to save the church? Not our bishops, not our priests and religious. It's up to you, the people. Oh, beautiful. So just because you don't have a dog collar or a funny hat on top of your head, it doesn't mean that the church doesn't need you. As a chapter comes to the end, we have the beauty of it not being done yet because we're going to be graced with David's haikus. Yes. So I wrote four, and I wrote them as almost a conversation between the Episcopal ghost and Dick. Interesting. So here we go. So this is starting as the Episcopal ghost. Why was I in hell? Honest opinions aren't sins. I can't believe that. And then Dick responds. We use loaded dice, abandon orthodoxy, repent and believe. Then back to the Episcopal ghost. No finality, anything but stagnation, no final answers. And then the bright spirit responds, you were once in hell, or maybe purgatory. Stay here in heaven. Oh, those are good ones. That was your best work yet. (laughs) Thank you. I like the conversation back and forth. Well, that's the end of today's episode. So please feel free to contact us at restlesspilgrim.net or on our website, pintswithjack.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, at Pints with Jack. And send us some more haikus. I missed them. And then definitely, definitely go to our YouTube channel. We actually had a nice little uptick here of people subscribing to it recently, so that's good. But it's still far below, multiples below what our, our podcast subscribership is. So there's a lot of you that we need to go over there and start commenting, start liking, start subscribing, start sharing with your friends. And we'll be back next week when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.